0: <laughs> <laughs> What's up, guys? John Sanchez, Cast, Craig He stepped up for just a second. Um, street continues. We are very excited. This platform seems to be working out extremely well. We got these guys in here, these legends, MLB legends, in today. But first, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us get the podcast out. It really helps us spread out the word. Don't forget to go check out our online store. We got these awesome hats. Let's see what else we got. We got. It. We got some red, we got some gray, blue, camo, all kinds of fun stuff. So, um, anyway, without further ado, Calf actually knows these two gentlemen very well, so I'll let him introduce
1: everybody. Okay, uh, so it's
2: just a matter of the one of you don't
1: know who you are. Can't hear a word you just said. What'd you just say? I'm okay, Gene, so I'm Gene for, Larkin, yeah, by yeah, the way. Go. I'm the older of the two guys here.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so I, I know Gene from well, Well, before before yes. you start talking, you'll take two hours of our time. I got one quick question before you start to rattle <laughs> off here. This is podcast number 68, correct, from Cutter Nation? Yeah. yeah. correct. Why the hell did it take you 68 podcasts to get me to carry on? <laughs> Seriously, Cass, the brand that we created for you, and we have to wait no. 68 podcasts. Lack of respect. You're lucky. You don't just hang up right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Good. What I the hell? To, who is them, who is podcast number one? Who is podcast number one? I want to know.
0: Uh, rod to FOIA, but it was also this has been going on for years. So it's just we've ha- we had hiatuses and then they changed format. So we just in the past three weeks were able to get this thing up and running again. All so right. All right. even okay. the first one on yep. this
1: session was still like 50, right? So <laughs> we'll, we'll feel a little bit better. <laughs> Cass, you would have never yeah. been the guy who you are right now without these two guys right here, buddy. Let's go. Shake yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> All truth, keep going.
1: Tell, tell people more. Oh uh, well, no, I mean I've heard a few of your pockets. You give me your history. I don't want to hear about your history anymore. I'm so bored with your freaking history. Let's go.
2: Yeah, so tell us well, I, you just keep going, Gene. So, yeah, I'll tell you this. I told Gene back in Minnesota, I'm like, if you just take if you just do a minute a day of rant. You will do a viral <laughs> nonstop. So well, Dave, listen, i been I, you I off told lately? you,
1: I told you the uh, the title of every one of my podcast should be Larkin's Lunacy for what we have to deal with in the industry, <laughs> um, dealing with uh, kids, parents, combination of both, other coaches. So you know, I could rant. I'm from New York. I'm a cynical guy. Uh, you gotta you gotta build up my trust over a long period of time before I trust you. Um, and in all seriousness, Cass, you know, we worked together a number of years ago for a long period of time. And um, from a guy who didn't say too much to a guy who doesn't shut up right now, uh, an amazing, an amazing way to evolve into a, a heck of an instructor. I'm not here to, you know, kiss your butt for another hour, but all right, I'm, I'm admiring what you've done, um, your work ethic. I know, John, you guys really bust your butt out there out west in San Diego. so. Um, when you can let me uh, I'll turn my okay boomer hat on right now a boomer to uh, to check out what you guys are doing the uh, the technology that's involved in your in your development and your training and uh, stuff like that if you can uh, you let me a guy like me who's old school kind of get into your world a little bit and help me become a better instructor I really appreciate it because you've done a great job in trying to uh, keep the dialogue. Going along, to to lack of a better phrase, to uh, continue dialogue and try to make not only kids better, but try to keep uh, coaches involved and try to get better in that regard. I'm always trying to get better. I always say if you're not trying to get better, you're not getting, you know, you're going to get worse. So things like that. I really appreciate from both of you guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's it's uh, uh, he, he challenges me every day as you probably are used to, you know. He likes to show off his biceps too, John. He wears those extra <laughs> small shirts and shows off those biceps, which drives me crazy. He, he's 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 <laughs> really into CrossFit
0: lately, so he's been he's been peacocking around the gym, a lot, you know, really flexing out. <laughs> uh, are, are you guys living together?
3: The- uh, what's <laughs> Are you guys living together? Me and him? Yeah. No, we're not living uh, together. No, he's uh, Oh, my God. Because I don't know. You, you couldn't take 24 right. hours of Cass, man. You, it's small doses <laughs> for sure. It's tough,
2: I know. You tell me. You tell me about
3: it. Cass, how much <laughs> do no, you I, miss
1: the Midwest Cass? Do you miss the Midwest Cass? Hello? Frozen. You missed the Midwest, Cass. <laughs> Technology. Hello.
3: Yeah. It's lit. I figured it would be my Wi Fi
1: for sure that would go down. I mean, that was good while it lasted, technology here. <laughs> five five minutes. Worth. Yeah, well, they didn't get to talk too much. I talked a little bit too much, probably. Hello? Hey, what did hey, you ask me? Oh, they're back. I just, I just asked you if you uh, missed the Midwest and how many tattoos of fish do you have on your other parts of your body now? <laughs> no more tattoos.
2: Um, I miss fishing the most. Um, yeah. And, and uh, Minnesota umpires, like, they, they are <laughs> definitely better there. Um, you know what else is, the driving here is unbelievable. Like, everybody drives 80, um, so that... I, I can't I hear you pre- at all,
3: Cass. At all?
2: Uh, this is freaking A. Just hey. hold on, this, this is bound to happen, so we'll just roll
3: with the punches here.
1: Can you guys hear us at all? No? No, I can hear you. But Kerry can't hear I
3: can hear Gene. I can't hear either one of you guys. So uh we're Gene, just tell
1: Carrie to um jump out and jump back in with the link. So I'm gonna remove him. Carrie, they're gonna want you to jump out of the link and then jump back in. All right. Hi Tech. <laughs> well, that's back to the Gene Larkin hour now. <laughs> <laughs> that was all a setup just to get Carrie's face in there. <laughs> He had weak Wi-Fi anyway, huh, Gene? <laughs> His kids are doing homework. That's so, the problem. Uh, Gene, you, I
0: love talking technology, and, and oh, jeez, of course. Uh, well, it, I'm interested from your perspective, though, as as it's grown, right? And and where do you find value in the technology? Because there's definitely stuff I that I agree that there's are things that are unnecessary in the technology data collection
1: space. Well, honestly, um, I think video is terrific. I really do. You would be an idiot to feel that video cannot be helpful in the majority of development and training. But I think sometimes it's used as a crutch a little bit. And let me try to explain myself by that. I think if you're trying to watch every throw or every swing, you start to get a little bit of paralysis regarding that. And when I deal with especially young kids, We'll occasionally look at video, but I'm trying to get them to how to show how they feel, whether they're hitting or whether they're throwing. And then after several instructional sessions, maybe three or four, then we'll sit down a little bit and talk video or look at a video a little bit more at length. But nowadays, I feel like we kind of use video as a crutch in that it's the only thing we want to do to create a learning environment where I'm more of a guy that I want to feel what i'm doing um so when i was when i was playing when there was very very little video until the last part of my um years as a, as a big league player when video became a little bit more prevalent i was more of a guy you know you get the ball on a T tee and i was a switch hitter take 50 swings lefty 50 swings righty, um, and just see how i felt throughout the throughout the session of the 50 swings when did i feel good what was i doing differently to barrel up the ball in a particular T session what was i doing wrong feel wise because i always feel that after you're what we're trying to do as teachers right is try to transition a player from being a great practice player to being a very good game player right so we've all had kids that look really really good in the tunnel or really good on a mound an indoor mound creating velocity then all of a sudden you see them in a game, and they don't look anything like the player that you've dealt with over a period of time. You try to say, well, why is this young man doing some things very, very different in a game? And that's when you have to try to get into his head. Did you feel differently in a game as opposed to what you're doing, doing a half hour or an hour uh, <coughs> training session? And then typically what the young player will say is, well, I don't remember what we talk about in practice because I'm just trying to see the baseball which is the correct statement from a 10 or 11 or 12 year old. You don't want really to think about too much in the batter's box, but you also want to get a little bit deeper than that. Okay. What in practice do you feel that you can't try to feel in a game while you're instinctually just looking at the baseball and getting your hips and hands to the ball, if that makes any sense at all, um, if I'm totally. verbalizing it correctly. So getting back to your question, technology at times, I think, especially for younger kids, we, we, do too much video, whereas as you start to get older, get into the high school, college area, obviously, when kids understand their bodies, understand their feel of what's supposed to happen, then I think video becomes really, really relevant. But for younger kids, I think we use it a little bit too much. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, we we uh, sometimes that Cass and I were talking about that. You can use slow motion video too much, right? Like it's good to good to see it in real time, but as well as see it in slow motion, and that way you can tell. We look for blurry arms a lot when we throw. That way they're accelerating correctly, so we can see that. If you watch in real time, you can actually see sometimes hesitation behind the head or hesitation right after release, um, and that exposes it. So showing both of those, you know, tremendous. You
1: know, if if you can have them feel it and understand it. Yeah, but I think seeing something and then trying to feel what you see is very, very different for young players because you mm-hmm. can show them on a video, this is what you're doing wrong, and they can't feel what they're doing wrong, so they'll keep repeating their mistake. Um, if that makes sense, so Holy. I want them, I want them to go through a, a training session without looking at it, and then okay, I'll stop them. Did you feel differently with that swing? Three swings prior, did you feel any different? Because that third swing prior was really, really good. What did you feel differently? What did you feel differently with your back half, with your lower half? Did you feel more connected to the ground? So you kind of put some thoughts in the head so they can kind of eventually train and coach themselves as they get older. You're trying to create a situation where you're providing information and your knowledge but also you want to help them start to coach themselves as their amateur career starts to develop as they get older and then they face a higher level of competition where you're not always going to have a coach in your back pocket during certain situations. To me, me, the the reason why I love the game of baseball so, so much, and I'm just going to talk from a hitter's perspective a little bit, when you're in that batter's box, you are on an island. No one can help you. Okay, you are just there you do the prep work as much as you can, but when when you're facing a guy in high school saying throwing high 80s And you've never faced a guy throw high 80s. It is something that just lights your eyes up a little bit You get a little intimidated. I don't care how good or how cocky or kind of swag you've got It's a little intimidating for the first time you see a guy throw the ball high 80s And then you Mm -hmm. have to try to make adjustments. So how does a coach who's not there in the batter's box with you, help you make adjustments. Well, hopefully, the guy that you've been working with for many, many years put a thought in your head, okay, now I'm facing a fastball I've never seen before. What did the coach tell me what to do when that occurs? So that's what I mean by being a good coach, by helping him understand how he can coach himself in a particular situation. Oh yeah. Hey, hey, Cass, you still have a
3: role as Chapman? Videos on hand to show everybody. <laughs> always in my phone.
2: Always in my
3: phone. <laughs> he was your one, go-to back.
2: Yeah, he always is. It's so obvious. Yeah. You know, the thing is. So the thing that I think from the the video standpoint is just if you do it enough over time, it's just like seeing the radar gun. It's just information, right? So. I don't think, as, I, I think the mistake that we make, uh, and, and obviously I'm as guilty as anybody at these younger levels, is like trying to explain it. Remember me working with Julia?
1: Yes, yes.
2: I, I would just show Julia somebody's swing and then just say, do that. And her interpretation was fantastic. So kids can yeah. mimic really well. I think it's just like the amount, and, you know, just the, you just got to keep it in, in perspective of how old they are. Um, yep. Yeah. I know it's going to be easy for us to talk about what we're doing now. Um, I want to force you guys into uh, a lot of people don't get to hear what it was like training in the eighties and the nineties and getting coached at that time, because I'm serious though, because this is where I really, I mean, so, so the, the part that is important to bring up is I am as old school as anybody because I learned from everybody from that era. Right. So it started with the, the big league baseball stuff. But like Jeff Sassinger and, and, and the people that I was looking for, if, if nothing else, you know, I have always been around people who are aware of what's going on in the industry. You know what I mean? Whether I'm like, oh, that's the best thing in the world or not. You know, I'm always going to say my opinion and, and, and try to think things from a different perspective. But um, anyway, uh, Carrie, here's where I want you to go, because I know that long toss has been a big thing for you. Um, kind of a late bloomer kind of guy. And I think your story would speak to a lot of kids. Um, So I don't know if you want to take him back to like Little League, but, you know, as far back as you want to go, just kind of get you to the Minnesota Morris and then go from there.
3: Well, why don't we just go towards the end of high school? I mean, for me, I never played other sports. I never weight turned. I kind of was, I was told running was kind of, the most important thing as a pitcher. So I would literally would run three miles a day, you know, and I as a senior in high school, I weighed a buck 50 maybe. So I was really skinny and just didn't get recruited. I went to a small division three college for two years. Um, And I was actually a good student and somewhat intelligent. So I went there (laughs) for school, but got to play baseball. Um, And then I I was transferring to the University of Minnesota um, to go into the engineering program and you know i was fortunate to get seen i ended up going to a twins tryout camp at the metrodome and i pitched the night before seven innings in a town team game went to the dome and threw and jim rance was there and he pulled me aside and was like you know what are you doing here because i looked like i was freaking like 17 i still looked really young um, <laughs> and he basically asked me who i was what i was doing i said well i'm so-and-so, I'm going to go to Minnesota. Well, he called the Gopher coach. They came out and basically saw me for once in the summer and then said, well, we'll put you on a team. You know, I didn't get a scholarship. They didn't make me try out, or but I was a walk-on, basically. Um, and, you know, for me, going to Minnesota, you know, I was in the engineering program. That was tough. But then getting some structure and learning how to lift weights, you know, it was a big deal for me because I literally had no idea what I was doing. I still ran – you know, up until I went to Minnesota, I was running three miles, five miles. And that's partly why my knees are basically shot now is I just ran and ran and ran. I did I kind of overtrained really. Um and then at Minnesota we started long tossing and I didn't take it at the time I didn't take it serious enough, you know, because there was young like kids that were freshmen, five ten, and the kid could long toss it 90 yards and I was barely getting at 60 yards. And my velocity was 84, 85. And when I was there, our pitching coach was Mike D. He's the, now he's the head coach at Illinois Chicago. And he had these, they were baseballs, but there was like a black one, which was heavier, a green one, which was super light. And so we did some type of training with that. And I always used, I ended up keeping the green one because I, for me, I always thought using that lightweight ball, was training my arm to move faster and to throw harder, you know. So for me, I ended up, you know, playing in Minnesota. Um, I didn't get drafted. I played in an independent league, and basically, I was 84 miles an hour. And then in the independent league, my dad basically said, "Dude." you can't be playing this and getting freaking paid 650 bucks a month. It's, you either need to like, you you need to get your shit together and go get your job and start working and making some money. And I was like, kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I ended up like taking it serious and lifting and kind of, I was up to about two ten, you know, somewhere on there and then started to just throw harder. And I, you know, for me it was, I always kind of had to drive, work hard, push myself. And I was, I don't know who I was talking to the other day, but when I was training, I was literally squatting three times a week and doing like box, a lot of plyometric stuff. And the thing is, this wasn't even like, you know, people didn't really weight trains like they do now. I mean, now it's like there's kind of a good progression. They have a pretty good idea what they're doing. We didn't do any deadlifts, none of the Olympic lifts. It was like squats, plyometric stuff, and then go run three miles. And we were told kind of don't do any upper body, but I just kind of I like to like look halfway in shape. So I always did, you know, buys and tries and tried to like just, you know, like nowadays it's all get big, get big, get strong, you know. And for me, I was always just a scrawny kid. So I kind of was like pushing myself to just get bigger because I wanted to throw harder. And then, you know, I ended up getting a chance to go play in the independent league. Greg Olson was my manager. He made a couple calls, and I got invited to spring training with the Braves, and um, luckily enough, I made an A-ball team. And just, you know, for me, when I was in A-ball, there was a ton of kids that were high school drafts that all it was was going out and partying and, you know, having fun. And for me, I was a freaking 25-year-old kid in A-ball, the oldest kid by, like, four years. And for me, it was, yeah, I'm going to have fun, but... For me, this is like it. This is my shot. Um, So I continued to work hard and long toss. And then my velocity just kind of jumped because I was a late bloomer. Um, And for me, I still stress with the kids, long toss. I've kind of implemented some of the weighted ball stuff and trying to learn as much as I can. Actually, with us being in quarantine, my oldest son is a senior. We actually just built a plyo wall in the backyard and finished it yesterday. So we've been, so now we have, so, I mean, for us, cool. it's just, you know, I'm trying to learn as much as I can, whether it's with, um, you know, guys like Cass, Cass was one of the guys when I, when he was doing lessons, I mean, he was kind of like way ahead of where most guys were at the time. He was really taking the driveline stuff in and all the other stuff. And he'd come up every year. He'd go to that, Convention and come up with all these crazy drills that, that he'd come back with, and um, <laughs> I actually do use, you know, like the throwing, the one, the throwing up up the mound. I actually have been using that a lot for certain kids because I'm like, man, it's for what I need it for. This is the perfect drill. So I mean, um, you know, that was for when he was there. It was good for me to, and he was just kind of a young punk, to talk a lot. So you know, for me, it was like good to kind of like listen to him, and he had a lot of good ideas. So. Um, I'm old, and but I realized when I was playing, the old coaches that I had that didn't freaking adjust and kind of like go with the new wave stuff, they were just done. They weren't any good anymore. And so I always said, if whatever I do, I'm going to be open to everything. And that, and that goes for like the weight of ball stuff, all that stuff. I've been just trying to like, between cast, guys like him, guys that I coach with the yeah, independent team that I... You know, is those guys that go there a lot and spend the time and they they spend a month there. I end up talking to them all summer just to kind of, you know, because they went through it and kind of learn what they did, what they thought was good, what they thought was a waste of time. Um, And I'm always still trying to learn. I would, you know, I really wish I could still play, but I'm uh, maybe slow pitch softball. That might be about it.
0: Um it's interesting. So I have a couple of questions about uh you your throwing stuff when you were as you were building up, right? So you said you were eighty four eighty five and that was when when you signed to go to with the Braves, do you know what your velocity was before? Had you been on a radar gun um,
3: before or actually I went so when I played in the independent league team, you know, Greg Olson made a call because I had a good I played two years in that league. And the second year I had a pretty good year and he made a call and said I'm gonna get you an invite to spring training. Well, they came out in like January up to Minnesota, two scouts to watch me throw. I literally had thrown like three times and I was like 84, 85. And they were like, yep, we'll sign you. Well, I found out like a year later, they basically came up there to make sure like, I had two arms, two legs, you know, kind of just to make sure it wasn't like some (laughs) joke like Ole was kind of a ball, so like is he trying to pull like some stunt you know so they came up and watched me and they you know i was mid 80s maybe but then again i didn't really you know going from college to pro ball it's a different timeline you know as far as when to throw how much time it takes you to ramp up um you know but i do know when i went to spring training that year um you know, I kept surviving the cuts and was getting close to the end. And Greg called me and was like, dude, you're going to make the team in Durham. And I was like, like freaking out, like, holy shit. And he said, I was like, <laughs> I was like 90 91. So I was like 90 91 in A ball that year. Um, and then they actually wanted me to go to Winter Ball, but I told them I wanted to go back to school, which everybody told me was a horrible idea. They said, you need to go listen to them and go. But I went back to school, and then I just kept lifting. And then the next spring, I broke with the AA team, and I was 90. All of a sudden, I was 93. And then when I got up to AAA, I was 95. I didn't really know exactly what I was doing. I was just throwing – I mean, I was just throwing as hard as I possibly could and trying to throw it somewhere where I was – the glove was, you know. Um, and I was I lucky love- I had – you know. I had a good slider and my fastball had some life. So so how, how old were you when you were 84, 85? So I would have been, this would have been 90. I mean, my senior year in college, which would have been 24. Cause I was, I redshirted a year too. Um, I was 85 and that would have been my senior year in college. And then in, When I went to the independent league, I was probably 86. It threw a little bit harder. At least it felt like I was throwing harder. Um, But at that time, you know, those independent leagues, there was – nobody scouted them. I mean, guys weren't getting signed out of these leagues. And in the league that I was in, half the kids were just freaking college kids from Hamlin, St. John's. I mean, just small schools. And these kids – nowadays, these kids would have no chance to play. I mean, so – um, for me, it was just, I got lucky, um, and I worked hard. I was a late, like a really late bloomer. Um, I mean, I didn't go through puberty until I was like freaking almost 17. So, I mean, I was just a late bloomer and got lucky. So.
0: Well, it, it's interesting, Kerry, because you, you, the time frame is what I'm looking at, right? Because, so I broke my elbow my senior year in college, um, going from a long arm action to a short arm action with like this weird pause behind my head. Um, I don't even know why I changed it. The summer before I was in the Valley League and I was 94, 95, and I had no clue because we didn't scout anything. Nobody was doing charts. It just wasn't there. I knew I kind of threw hard by the way guys reacted to the pitches, but I just, I just didn't know what it was. Um, but it, So after I break my elbow, I, I start revisiting. Uh, I start just looking at film of guys, you know, like Verlander, you know, never really been on the DL for his arm. There's a bunch of other things, these questions that I started asking because – you hear the same thing all the time. You can't develop velocity. And this is me, you know, I'm, I'm 34. So this is right in, um, you know, to early 2000 is basically when I start this journey of high school, I graduated in 04 and then it was just literally not possible. That's all I heard from everybody. Like you, you're born with your arm, your velo's genetics, like all of these things. And yet the, when I was going and playing in junior college and some other places, I'm not seeing that, right? So these university camps that I would go to, uh, because that's the only information I got from the small area that I'm at, it just nothing lined up. So it's just very confused. So when I hear your story and I think about mine, I'm seeing like a three-year window, and I went from like zero on my elbow, and I got back to 96. And and no one, like the only thing I heard from everybody was like, "You're gonna get hurt again. Like you're gonna throw too much." So it's, it's all this stuff. And so listening to your story and like the late bloomer thing, I honestly think anybody can throw 90 miles an hour. It's just the time frame that it takes because if you play in season, right, you, you break up that, that on ramping process and you can't keep building what you're doing. Well, I, I didn't play in a season. I, I took a full year and a half to come back. And, and that's all I did every day was throw, work on patterning, throw, workout, lift, run similar to what you're doing I had no idea what I was doing either but you know the the information was wasn't what it was so the fact that you're able to get up to 94 95 at 25 26 and you had never really thrown that hard before is a very inspiring story because we get calls all the time from kids that got cut from junior college their freshman year and their coaches are like you don't throw hard enough you're never going to cut it blah 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 but if they take their own gap year and actually understand like what training is you can do major transformations in 12 months. Like it's crazy how much of stuff that you can do nowadays. And, and those stories, like what you're saying it's you can take that experience and condense it down to the most efficient process you can and really do some special stuff.
3: Well, and I think for me, the one thing I found as I kept going was I would go into spring training, and my velocity, it would take me forever to get my VLO up, you know? And so For me, it was like I had to just almost continue throwing year-round. So in Atlanta, you know, we would play late into the year, and I would literally take, like, maybe three weeks off and then just get back into long toss because I would want to start throwing bullpens, you know, right around Christmas time because, for me, it was always – I would go to spring training, and my velocity was, like, 83. And I was like, holy – I'm not going to freaking make the team. I'm going to get cut this year. And then it was like once I got into you know, game mode, you know, kind of that where you're throwing to hitters and it's kind of they're trying to freaking hit one so hard right back through the box. I'm fighting for my life out there and just amping it up to another level. That's yeah. where I, every year it was always at the end of spring training. I, my VLO would jump because it was the, those two or three weeks of games that really started to matter where I was really amping up, you know, the adrenaline and just everything. That's when I got the velo. So then I started trying to throw to college teams in the winter, you know, trying to replicate the same situation. It's just, it never quite worked, you know, but for me, I always felt like I was kind of a slow, just my, took my arm time to get into shape and to get to game speed. And I wasn't, you know, Roger Clemens or, no. you know, I wasn't a guy that was super established. For me, it was always somebody's coming for my job and, I'm not going to let him take it. I got to do what I got to do to freaking be ready to go. So for me, it was, you know, when I was there, Leo Mazzoni was the pitching coach. And he would always, I mean, he would always say, we're going to throw you around. He kept saying it too. Pitchers are going to just throw you around. That's just how it's going to be. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, super, you know, effort all the time. But he was like, "It's that's the way it's going to be. And he, he ended up kind of being right because guys, guys are throwing a lot more than they used to that's for I'm sure in, i'm
0: in I, I haven't stopped throwing in 10 years since i got hurt and i'm 34 and i still throw i rip i rip in the gym and like i don't yeah. oh, i saw some crazy stuff in mexico and i played i saw a 40 year old throw 100 and he was a degenerate it was bad you know
3: but his. his
0: i tell the story all the time because it's crazy because he knew who he was he would not throw listen to this gary he would throw for 15 minutes you know this guy right he throw for 15 minutes start at like a hundred feet and then in 15 minutes be back all the way to right center wall right come back Mm -hmm. in and just watch vp and then at the end of vp he would take one baseball and he would shuffle fire from home plate if he couldn't throw it out from center field he didn't throw that day is the craziest thing i saw every day and he did it for like six weeks i'm like this is nuts like this guy is crazy right
1: but then I talked
0: to him and and I asked him, you know, when you're talking about throwing year round, there's these stories of these guys that do this. And you find out this dude's thrown 100 since he was 20. And that's all he's ever known. And he's just played, he's just gone, he's been on this team in Mexico and then that team in Venezuela. And then he's been in Japan and Korea. And he just kept playing and just kept throwing. And so we hear this story all the time about that. And and it, it's, it makes sense with you. Like there's another example of a guy that's just you threw more, right? And if you knew more, like you were saying about onboarding or, or about like rebuilding, Alan Jaeger has some amazing stuff about off-season throwing, about exactly what you're talking about, about like going straight into a non-competitive um, phase of throwing where you're long tossing and your goal is completely different, right? It's about volume at a distance and then building that up first. And, and it sounds like that's what you did too, because I love the long toss. Like I'll go throw, we can go throw today, If you want, we'll go out to the field and I'll see you on the other end. That's social distancing at its best. But, you know, we, we go out and throw for (laughs) hours out there and you just don't see, you just don't see that type of, of work on it. And that's where that skill comes in. And it sounds like that's where you lived also, where you needed that, you needed to throw, you needed to throw. And then once you figured out when, you know, your fight or flight response comes out that, 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 that is where that extra tick was that you could be, you know, I mean, I, I didn't face near the caliber of hitters that you did, but I, I do know what you're talking about. There's a there's a Mexican Babe Ruth that's there right now. He is six, <laughs> he's 6'7", 300 pounds, and he hits some of the farthest baseballs that I've ever seen off people. And he doesn't miss. He, he plays in Japan in the oh. summer, and he plays back home in the winter, and he plays in that um, field in Jalisco in the World Baseball Classic. And I wish they had a distance meter because I know he's five hundred feet all the time, <laughs> like all the time. It's crazy. So yeah, it's impressive to hear you say that.
2: Gene is pretty similar to that too. I mean, that's that's kind of what got me going as a young coach was I'm hearing you guys have conversations, about, like what you did versus what people were telling you to do. How, like TK would get pissed when he'd see you lifting, and so yeah, give tell the tell the people. Yeah. It was-
1: well, I'm a little bit different than Carrie. That I in in high school, I played all the sports. Um, I was a much better basketball player coming out of high school. I was not even the best baseball player on my high school team, and it still bothers me to this day that I didn't win MVP my senior year. <laughs> it pisses me off. But anyway, but I was a lot. And I was a small guy, five nine, five ten. I loved to play basketball games, but I hated basketball practice. So I had some D two opportunities in basketball. But I knew go in my heart that if I went that route, I wouldn't be a very good player because I didn't like to practice. Whereas baseball, I mean, I would love to take 100 ground balls a day, take 100 swings a day, have my dad throw BP as much as his arm could handle. So I knew baseball was my passion. Um, but I, I was, frankly, guys, just an average high school baseball player, which, you know, I think I can relate a lot to the high school players today who – or trying to get to the next level, but, you know, they're average right now. No one really gives them a chance. They've got this dream. They've got this passion. And frankly, the only guy that ever thought that I was going to play at professional level was me. My mom, my dad thought that I was absolutely nuts. Every player, every coach that I ever played for thought I was an absolute jo- joke to even think about that. Um, I had an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy. And my reason why not going to the Naval Academy, I told my father because I'm going to go play pro baseball. And he had a conniption. He absolutely lost it on me. So um, he didn't talk to me for about 30 days. He goes, you're turning down a free education with a guaranteed job when it's all said and done to do what? I says, I'm going to play professional baseball. He goes, you're the only guy with that dream who actually believes it. So that was my mindset. Um, So when I talk to young players today, I'm not here to – you know, break up anybody's dream. I really believe it. If you got that mindset, really doesn't matter what other people think. You have no idea what your ceiling is, and I'm the only one who really thought that I was going to get to where I wanted to go. Now, I knew I wasn't going to be easy. Um, I went to Columbia University in New York, and the reason why I went there because it was only an hour from my house, and I wanted my parents to go watch me play. And the coach was relatively new there; he was only there two years, I believe, and he. When he came into my uh, recruiting session, he just said, listen, I'm going to try to revamp our whole team. Um, It's a great opportunity to play four years, especially as a freshman, if you show me what you can do in the fall. So I wanted to play right away. I didn't want to sit on the bench. um, And I knew I was going to get a great education at Columbia. So that's why I went that route. And just like Carrie, I was, you know, if you had seen me walk onto campus at Columbia, you'd think I was a tennis player. I was so skinny. I had no muscle tone, no nothing. So, but I had good hands and I could throw the ball a little bit. And uh, you know, I, I I put the ball in play. I didn't have a lot of power, but I put the ball in play. I had very good hand-eye coordination. I very rarely struck out. And as a freshman, you just want to show to the coach that you can play right away. And um, he had an open spot at third base, and he put me right there for the for the first game of my college career. And I never missed a game. But uh, I first got you know a passion about lifting when I went into the Columbia gym as a freshman. I couldn't lift the bar off the the thing for ten reps. I, that's how weak I was. Uh, I was just—I never had touched a weight. Very rarely did push-ups. Rarely did anything as far as body weight type stuff. But um, the weight room intrigued me. They had Nautilus equipment at that time, way back when. And I kind of lived in the weight room. And I went in there when no one was there. I was so embarrassed how how weak I was. I would go in real early in the morning or real late at night, where there might be one or two people in there, and I just kept putting weight on, kept putting weight on and got stronger and stronger by the time i was a junior in college i had you know i had the ability to hit for some power and then when i was a senior i hit 19 home runs in 40 games which is uh, for me for a guy who had two or three a year and all of a sudden i hit 19 everybody was talking about i was on the juice which wasn't around <laughs> back then so i can honestly say it wasn't the juice me. <laughs> But, it's a compliment. Uh, it's a compliment. Yeah, it's a you compliment. Know? Yeah, but I got, I got stronger, and, uh, you know, I got one of those mindsets that I just love being in the gym. And back then, you know, lifting wasn't even thought of. It was all football players who were going to lift, but as far as baseball players, it's, you know, you're, you're going to get tight. You're not going to be able to throw the ball. You're not going to be able to rotate your hip, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard that nonsense. And uh, I just kind of fought against that attitude and got as strong as I could. And uh, fortunately for me, after my senior year, the Twins drafted me in the 20th round. And, uh, you know, we all know if we're in the industry, if you're drafted in the 20th round, you're not a highly touted prospect. And I tell kids today, when you're drafted in the 20th round, you're basically drafted to fill up a roster spot so that that a team can be formed for the first, second, third, fourth, fifth round guys can have a team to play for. So I, uh, but I'm a very big goal setter um there used to be a publication called the sporting news back when when i was a kid and they all had minor league stats and um what i did was i wrote down the name of every i played first base they moved me to first base from third base and, and as a professional The twins did and i wrote down every first baseman's name at every level and they put me at rookie ball so there was one rookie ball team there were two a ball teams a double a and a triple a before you got to the big league so i put down all the minor league first baseman's names and every time I played against them in spring training, I would cross his name off because I said, I'm going to be able to beat him, be able to beat him. And I got the AAA, crossed that name off. And then in uh, 1987, when the Twins uh, brought me up in May, I literally was the first. Actually, I, I should take that back. It was in spring training that he says, my first big league spring training. I, I walked in spring training. I met Kirby Pocket, Ken Herbeck, walked on the field at first base with Ken Herbeck watched him take about 10 ground balls, took about a round of BP, and I called my dad right after my first big league workout, and I said, Dad, that name will not be crossed off right there. It will not pull <laughs> that guy up. I knew that five minutes into my first big league camp day. Um, he's just a, you know, he was a phenomenal player, a terrific guy, but I knew then that I could work my towel off, but I was never going to get to that level. Um, but that didn't mean that I wasn't going to try to you know, be the best I could be. Um, and frankly, I fought for my life every camp. It was the 24th, or 25th guy. Occasionally, it might be the 22nd or 23rd, but there was no situation where I was going to not work hard in the offseason because I was guaranteed an opportunity to play next year. I'd never had that ability. I was always, always felt like I was fighting the fight. Had the chip on my shoulder. Didn't hit enough for power. Uh, wasn't fast enough. Had all the the mindset that I knew what what people thought I couldn't do and I was just going to try to overcome that. Um when I started living in Minnesota full time, I used to go to the University of Minnesota with a strength coach called Bob Rodi, who kind of um, started me with different weightlifting programs, a little bit more deadlifts, more more leg stuff. And I kind of picked his brain a little bit. Um, but you're right, Cass. We've had a number of guys who will go to the U during that time. Um, coach Tom Kelly would come in there. He was a great guy as far as trying to keep himself in shape and i always felt uncomfortable being in the weight room with him because i know i thought that he kind of had that mindset that that's really not necessary to do but um for me i felt that it it was i had to do it i had to uh, outwork everybody else to just uh, to keep my 24th or 25th spot on the roster so um i was very fortunate to come along at the right time with the right team i say i worked very very hard for what i accomplished but i also was very very lucky Um, too. I was in the right spot at the right time. I was with an organization that kind of needed someone like me, um, pretty versatile, played a little outfield, played a little first base, designated hitter for the most part when I first called up. And I feel very fortunate that I learned a lot from the guys who were very, very good. Um, Our best players were our hardest workers. So for me, I always felt like, you know, at the 24th or 25th, man, how can I not bust my butt in practice? So I I try to utilize that mentality when I when I instruct kids. And I my goal always is whatever team you're going to coach, if you can try to instill to each player that if you try to be the, the hardest working guy in practice and we've got 12 or 15 guys on a team, each guy has that attitude, you're going to probably have a pretty successful season. I'm not even talking about wins and losses. I'm talking about just being around a great group of guys who want to get to their ceiling. Um, now, I think for us, We know what got us to a certain point, and we also know the mistakes that we made. For me, as an instructor, it's also verbalizing the mistakes that we made so that the younger players who are taught by us understand that just because we got to a certain level doesn't mean it was an easy road to get there. And if they can understand the mistakes we made and try to avoid the same pitfalls, then we as coaches are doing a terrific job not only enhancing their abilities mechanically or mentally, but also telling them, this is not going to be an easy road and it's going to take a great deal of sacrifice, a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And when I use the word sacrifice, I think people think it's just a word. But you really got to give up a few things in life if you really want to be the athlete or the ball player you want to be. Um, I, I tell kids all the time, the only thing that shouldn't suffer, in my opinion, if you really want to be a great athlete, is your academics. Um, that always should take the forefront. And then, if, if you're a faith-driven guy, actually, you know, take that very, very seriously. But your friendships are going to suffer a little bit, too. You know, your buddies want to go out on the Friday or Saturday night, hit the town a little bit. And then you've got an 8 o'clock in the morning workout the next day. Well, guess what? If you want to hit the town the night before, your workout's not going to be as good. So that's just kind of one little item that I tell kids. It's, it is a huge sacrifice. And um, the word is used a lot, but I don't think people really realize how much of a sacrifice it is. Because we see the finished product on TV quite a bit. But everybody's got their own story and their own journey and how they got there. And some have, you know, very few guys had enough ability where they can just cakewalk it to the big leagues. Most guys had to bust their butt where a lot of things were sacrificed to get to that particular point in time in their life.
0: It's funny that you say that, too, because we we talk about the phrase every day and we don't think that most people in general understand what every day is right like yeah. whether whether any kind of skill development goes into it whether it's putting or driving a car or whatever most people don't have the discipline to be able to literally do it every day for for the yeah. amount that it's required to acquire the skill
1: yeah and nowadays you know there's obviously social media and you you tape your your videos and you, your workouts and I, I think that's great i enjoy watching this but in my day they didn't have that type of stuff and i was taught at a very young age it's like do what you do when people aren't watching you will really determine how well you're going to be. Because if the only time you're going to try to light up anything regarding your training session is when someone is watching you or you're performing a trial for a team. If you're not doing the same thing when nobody's watching you, you're probably fooling yourself and trying to fool a lot of different people. So behind the scenes, what are you doing? You're getting up on time to get a workout done? Are you putting the effort in in your workout? Are you getting enough sleep? Because everybody talks about nutrition now. Everybody kind of has a really good idea of what you should be putting in your body. But for younger kids, I think the one thing they don't quite understand is how much sleep is needed if you're gonna create a situation where your body is gonna be pushed, pushed, pushed. You're not getting enough sleep, as simple as that sounds, your body's not gonna be able to recover for your next workout, which is gonna be, meaning that your workout isn't as good as it could have been. Go, go ahead. yes uh, Um.
2: No, I no, I wasn't gonna say anything.
0: Uh, um. I find it <laughs> it's funny. I find it interesting. Um, you know, Gene, in your era, you know, you were told no weights. Um. Carrie, I know. Uh, I've read Leo Mazzoni's book. You know, talking about all the shoulder workouts and the things that he did. Um. Could you touch on that a little bit? What your experience was with Leo, With Leo, because I, I am such a fan. Um,
3: Yeah, you know, Leo was, you know, Leo's big philosophy was locate fastball down and away. I mean, if you could do that, because if you look at the Braves teams, everybody located their heater pretty good. um, And especially down and away. And the thing is, if you couldn't do it, you weren't going to be there very long. Um, You know, when I got there, I used to work out every morning. So at home or on the road, I would go to the gym and it started in spring training. And for me, it was some days I'd hammer squats and then get to the field and I'd end up pitching that night. So for me, the biggest thing was in spring training, getting used to just getting after it in the weight room, because I always wanted to continue lifting all the way through the end of the year. Because my goal was come August when everybody's kind of, you know, everybody comes into spring training in pretty good shape. About August, those guys just have stopped working out as hard or going, working out at all. And guys are starting to drag. And for me, I always looked at from August on was kind of where I'm gonna take advantage of and really just continue doing what I'm doing. And as a young player, it was trying to get established, trying to put up numbers, trying to help the team, you know, and we were always fortunate enough to be in this position to win. So it was like, I wanted to be part of that every year. And so in spring training, I always would push myself to lift. And then going into the month of April, you know, getting used to getting after it in the weight room and then maybe pitching in a game that night. And there were games where I was complete jelly leg in a game like in Florida and just didn't pitch well. And for me, it always kind of showed like the month of April over my career wasn't great, just number wise, because I was still kind of getting into that mode of being able to lift as hard as I want to and then be ready for the games. Um, you know and it got to a point where abby cox was there he didn't like that i was lifting his heart and he even a couple of times in the mornings we would be on the road and he was always, always go on his walk i would freaking like make sure he was gone before i left to go to the gym because he had gotten pissed at me a couple of times for going he would rather like you were out all night at the bar than lifting every morning before the game and it was kind of just old school that's kind of how it was you know a few few of the
1: guys in the twins would fit right in with your team so i mean i think that's i mean
3: i think that's where the games really changed is everybody knows what to eat how to take care of their body how to prepare the best way for lifting and you know for success and for me it was kind of just trial and error because I would you know buy muscle fitness magazines and like you know because it was really kind of new you know and as far as baseball training there wasn't a ton of like stuff out there so just kind of trial and error exercises you know stuff that i should do stuff maybe that would not be a great idea for me to do and you know there was a couple years where i was you know doing some stuff and like man this this is not a great idea you know, and just for me, it was the same way with the long toss. There was no set program, no routine. Um, I always did my. I always called them the job's exercises. You know, like because when I was playing, you know, Dr. Job had his shoulder exercises, kind of like your Wise T's W's. Yep. That nowadays you see, and I never yeah, got into bands. Book. Yeah. Yeah. So I never did. I never did bands ever, but I always used kind of. We had these kind of. Um, They were like a baseball, but they were like lead. So they were like freaking five, six pounds. And that's what I would use. And now, knowing what I know now, it was way too heavy. You know, so I was doing my exercises with these big ass balls and I should be using like a third of the weight, you know. So for me, I mean, for me, it's been good because I can help, you know, like my kids or the kids I do lessons with, you know, just give them some more information so maybe they can be a little more successful. You know, for me, I, it was always I'm going to work harder than the next guy because that's how I got to this point And it's the only way I'm going to stay here. You know, and that's where I try to, you know, for me, whether it's coaching with the Saints or, you know, doing lessons with kids or even, you know, talking to my own kids, <clears throat> you got to work hard. You can't. Nothing's just given to you. I mean, in some instances, maybe, but for most human beings, nothing's just given to you. You got to work your ass for it. And I mean, to get, you know, it's great to be a superstar, but most of those guys had to work, you know, they were given some talent, but they work hard to get to where they need to be. And, you know, that's kind of the approach I took. It's kind of the approach I try to tell these kids with the Saints that want another opportunity to get back in an organization or make it to the big leagues. I mean, you gotta, you can't just quit. You gotta keep working, man. What's
2: your favorite uh, memory from the Braves, Kerry?
3: Well, favorite memory? Well, we yeah, never what, won the World what, Series. So it's, <laughs> yeah, when I said that, um,
2: what jumps in your mind?
3: No, I mean, for me, personally, I my first, my rookie year, I had, you know, I kind of got into the closer role. And, you know, for me, it was mm-hmm. it was so much fun kind of being that guy at the end. You know, it didn't end in the playoffs, did not end like I had envisioned it. You know, because I didn't pitch great in the playoffs, um, but it was fun. I mean, for me, it was I had I just got into such a routine where I was literally throwing in the bullpen pretty much every single day, to where I could locate. I mean, I literally could locate my fastball down and away to a righty 90% of the time. It just because I got so consistent with my mechanics and my release point. I mean, it was crazy. I would just come in and it would just strike one, strike two, slider. I mean, it just got to be such a routine, and it was fun. I mean, it was fun kind of being the guy at the end. And for me, I mean, I'm not that guy at all. I'm kind of pretty laid back and chill. But it was it was fun to be a part of, you know, a team that was good. And every year we were, you know, we always had a shot. We were always in the playoffs. And uh, and the fans were, I mean, that's TV, yes. Or, a little crazy too, until college football started and nobody came to the game. So, um, but it was, you know, for me, it was kind of the whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing was awesome. And I'm, you know, I look back and sometimes I'm like, how did I even, how did I really get there? It just seems crazy. Cause a lot of things like Gene said, I was in the right place at the right time and took advantage, you know, for me, when I got called up, it was like, well, you're here you need to, I mean, now you need to run with it. Cause there were guys that got called up at the same time that were, you know, getting caught up and going out and kind of just, you know, like, well, I'm going to be here forever. And I was like, I don't want to leave here because this is way better than fricking a hotel in Lynchburg, Virginia. So it's, you know, for me, it was like I'm going to bust my butt and just, you know, have fun. And I remember the very first day I got called up, I went, You know, the thing is, I didn't, when I got called up that year, I had never been to Big League camp. So I wasn't on the 40, man. I didn't know, like, I knew, like, two guys on the team, two guys that I played with in AAA. So the way I got to the clubhouse, and I'm like, holy shit, man. I don't know anybody. And one of the kids that I played with in AAA was there, and he's like, I'll bring you in. And he's like, make sure you introduce yourself to everybody, you know, because he was, like, trying to give me a quick prep course and what to do. And the first guy that I opened the door was Greg Maddox. <laughs> and I was like, and for me, it was like, because I was still like Tom as this guy's a stud. And I don't even know him. And I was like, oh, my God. And he was like, he just like nodded his head. He's like, what's up, dude? And I was like, oh, my God. this was, And so it was like him and then Smoltz and all those guys. For me, as a college kid, I watched, you know, they were still pretty good just starting that run. And so for me, seeing those guys, I'm like, man, this is crazy. that. I'm in the same clubhouse, you know. So for me, it was just being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage and working hard. And I tell kids all the time, you know, like Gina said, your mind's freaking powerful, man. You can, If you believe you can do something, you can do it, man. So, you know, for me, it's, I always try to be positive and tell kids to work hard because you just never know. Kerry, who was the guy
1: who was the guy that uh, gave you the most fits as a hitter that you had a real tough time getting? You stole after?
3: my question. You stole uh, my no,
1: question. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I was, say um, the, sorry. I was gonna say the <laughs> same thing to you, Gene. Which pitcher absolutely <laughs> ate your lunch? Uh, well, does Kerry <laughs> want to answer first? Because that's an easy answer for me. Yeah, Kerry, go. I already I already answered uh, that the other day. I know <laughs> I know like uh
3: I know Cliff – I had trouble with lefties a lot. Like, lefties hit a lot of homers off me. I know <laughs> Cliff Floyd hit a couple bombs. Um, Big Poppy took me deep a few times. Tony Clark <laughs> Tony Clark hit some moonshots. But I know the one guy in Moises Alou, when I was a rookie, I faced him in the playoffs, and I threw him seven straight sliders. And I saw so seven sliders in a row, full count, another slider, and I struck him out. Well then, I I faced him a bunch because he was with the Marlins, the Astros, the Cubs, and so I kept throwing him slider, just slider, slider. And it, at one point, it was like thirteen sliders in a row. <laughs> well then we would, and this was over like a freaking six year span. So I was always getting him out on sliders. Well then we played him. I think it was in the Astrodome. He was with Houston, and I decided I've thrown him, and this was over like five six years. I've thrown him enough sliders. I'm going to throw a first-pitch heater. Well, he freaking – first, he smoked it off the wall <laughs> double. And then it was like <laughs> – and then after that, he pretty much got hit off me like every single time. Like no matter what I threw, it was slider, homer, double. I mean, he – so he gave me a hard time. After those first, you know, four or five at-bats, he just started kind of just blasting me all over the park. So he was one guy <laughs> that I – I always called – because he never wore batting gloves and was super old school. And He was one <laughs> time like, man.
0: Super old school. Pee on your hands old school.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: um, okay, that, Gene, your turn. How about, how about the, the, your the favorite hit, the time in the box? It? Yeah, the pitcher that absolutely well, made pit, you – uh,
1: Yeah, I, I, I could not hit uh, a right-hander from Kansas City, Mark Gubiza. Um I, he was just fastball, slider, really wasn't, and he would not throw me a fastball. He would just throw slider, slider, slider. So it's it was weird that you knew a pitch was coming, yet you couldn't put the ball in play very consistently. Um, the funny story about that, so obviously as a, as a role player, you you know, going into the clubhouse every day, you really have no idea whether you're going to be in the lineup or not. So I would, as soon as I'd walk in, I'd rush to the lineup hoping I was going to be in the lineup card. And in Kansas City, on the road, you have to pass the Manager's office to check out the lineup card. There's a long hallway. so as i'm as I'm about to pass uh, Tom Kelly's office to go to see the lineup card, he goes, "Hey, where are you going, Lark?" he goes, I'm just going to check out the lineup card. He goes, do you know who's <laughs> pitching tonight? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gubiza. He goes, yeah, guess what? You can turn around and go back to your locker. <laughs> so after about That's four hilarious. or five games, not, not putting Gubiza in play, he decided that uh, he was going to feel sorry for me and get me out of the line. I'm trying to put someone else who could put the ball in play. <laughs> hilarious. Guess, for, for whatever reason, there's always some guy or two that, even if you're a great hitter, and I wasn't certainly, I was a below average hitter, but there's always one guy that you know, you just don't pick the ball out of the hand real well. And whether he's throwing cutters or simple sliders or a breaking ball, you just, you know, you've got this mentality that you're trying your best, but there's just nothing happening positive to you. But there's th- another situation where there's a pitcher named Todd Sodelmeyer where he was pretty good right-hander most of his career in Toronto. And I hit the ball hard every time I faced him, um, and he was just getting so pissed off on the mound. I think he hit me three times on the elbow just to <laughs> let me know that I know if he throws a strike, I'm going to barrel a damn thing up. And he didn't want me to barrel <laughs> it up, so he hit me three different times. So everybody's got a, a hitter or a, a pitcher that they can't uh, they can't smoke at all. So
2: I, I didn't did know the story, and it's so funny. I want to hear it. What what's that story of the guy you played that
1: with that was like Are we even trying today? Oh, that was that's Randy Bush. Randy Bush was a, another role player for us. Uh, great pinch hitter, played a little right field, but basically he made his career being a great pinch hitter off the bench, left-handed hitter. But he had the driest sense of humor. It, it just fit in with our personality of our clubhouse. And, so he didn't, you know, he didn't get a lot of time. And if there's a lefty on the mound, he knew he wasn't going to get a start. He got an occasional start against a right-hander, but every time he would check the lineup out, and he wasn't, he wasn't on the lineup, he would yell out to all of us, "Hey, are we even trying today? I'm not even, are we even trying to win this game today." You know, so guys like that. So I, I learned, you know, you bring up, I, you bring up Randy in that in that uh, story, but that's a perfect example of someone who really took me. Under his wing Um, and I really tried to follow his lead about preparing for a game, even though you might not be in a game like preparing for a pinch hitting situation. It started for him in the fifth inning. Just thinking about who was in the bullpen that particular night, who had pitched the night before. He knew as a left handed hitter, he was only going to face righty. So thinking about that, going up in the clubhouse, stretching out, swinging about, getting on a stationary bike. All that stuff as a young player that you kind of watch and you visualize and you see how when someone is really good at a job, you try to copy little nuances that they go through. Um, you know, Roy Smalley was another guy that I followed and tried to take his lead a little bit. So knowing that for the majority of my career, after I proved to TK that I wasn't an everyday starter and I was a role player, which happened very, very quickly, <laughs> uh, that I had to uh, make a living coming off the bench, uh, you kind of figure out what you can do to uh, to stay up in the big leagues and that's one of the things i tried to do is follow other guys leads that made a living coming off the bench and being role players and randy was one of those guys um
2: i no <laughs> i i could just ask none so. oh i got, i got one Go i got one
0: um, who who's the from since both of you guys are kind of different eras the most impressive pitcher that you saw carry and then the most impressive hitter that you saw gene.
1: I guess, I guess I'll start from a hitting perspective. Um, You know, just from a physical specimen uh, without a question, it was Bo Jackson. Um, We all, we have seen highlight reel after highlight reel. He's the only guy that I saw during my career go upper tank over the blue baggie to right center field as a (laughs) right-handed hitter. Only guy. Um, and i tell this story his first professional game was in double-a in the memphis when i was playing double-a orlando for the twins i was playing first base he hit a routine ground ball to shortstop and he's the only runner i heard coming down the line he was coming down so fast so that when he passed me he's like oh my god i felt like i got run over he didn't hit me but run over by an animal it was so powerful going through he's just a uh, physical specimen um, you know, and obviously you look back and if he did not get hurt, how, what kind of numbers he would have put up as a baseball player if he did not get hurt in football and hurt his hip. And even, you know, playing with a new hip to have the ability to still turn on baseballs and hit the ball out of the park at a big league level. We all know how important our hips are as athletes and baseball players for him to have such a serious injury to his hip and come back and still have the ability to hit the ball 400 feet is incredible. By far, he was the most... Gifted hitter that I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I, the uh, his Bono's documentary is one of my favorites. And yeah. the story in the All Star game where he goes on the top shelf of the batter's eye yeah. in Kansas City. He's like, "Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. Uh, not from this planet. It's not." Carrie, you got anybody?
3: As for a pitcher, yeah. Well, I, like, who, for who, me, who it would be. You would I mean. Well, and for me, you know, I would say John Smoltz, just 'cause, and I was lucky enough to kind of see him, and maybe that, you know, makes my view a little biased, um, but he just had phenomenal stuff, just electric fastball, slider, and he's a freaking big dude, man. And that was a thing I didn't really realize. He's six four. He's he's a big boy, you know, and just super competitive, you know. And the thing is, when he, you know. He was always a good starter. Well, then he basically, we had the same agent, so he, he basically had blown his elbow out, and he, we knew it. And he ended up wanted to keep pitching, wanted to help us in the playoffs, so he ends up trying to become a reliever and figure out an arm slot where it doesn't hurt so he can be useful for us you know, during the season as opposed to going and having a Tommy John right away. So, I mean, he ended up throwing like in that low three, like even lower slot than he usually did. And it was like 96, 97 with a torn UCL, you know? And so for me, he was just, he always had just, his slider was super filthy and just electric fastball. And I always just enjoyed watching him throw in the bullpen. You know, and I, I took advantage a lot of times going down just to watch, watch those guys throw, partly just to kind of see, what they were doing, you know, what should I be doing? Because I don't really know. I mean, I'm just a kid who's in the big leagues and kind of just awestruck, but I'm like, at the same time, I'm like, I need to take advantage and try to figure out what I need to do to stay here, what I need to do to get better. Um, and I was lucky with Kevin Millwood and I came up together, but we both kind of like got taken under, you know, John's wings and, um, all those guys and Denny Nagel was there and I knew Denny because he played in Minnesota, you know, a few years before I did. So Denny kind of always was there to help us, especially that first first year and a half where guys can get sidetracked pretty quick. And for us, you know, in Atlanta, it was, it was about winning first and foremost. I mean, they didn't care where you were from, who you were. It was what are you going to do to help this team win? So, um, you know, I was just lucky to watch Smolti play and he was good. And we had a lot of good ones, too. I will say this. When I was playing Barry Bonds, he was freaking unbelievable as a hitter. Yeah, I mean, I'm, we I'm used so to glad go, you
0: said that because I was going to yeah. say something about that because that was like – 98, yeah. 99 was like one of his best years, and they keep bringing up that season. And it's obvious to me that no matter what he says and what's been done after that, he does. It, that season's unreal statistically, and I remember him just lighting up baseballs against the Braves. I'm like, how do you get this dude out? <laughs>
3: yeah, no, he was. I mean, he looked like I saw him with like a tank top, and it looked like he had two, two big bowling balls for show. I mean, he was just a monster. But we would watch him. I would go watch him take VP because it was, it was a joke how far he was hitting balls. You know, and I remember. I think he ended up hitting three or four in a game office that year to beat us at, at in Atlanta. And he was, I mean, I don't know if he took anything or you know whatever. What you, but was, <laughs> you <know> what? <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was like, I mean, <laughs> he was freaking his oh, hand-eye coordination right there. You don't know. <laughs> I'm not gonna speculate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean he's good. And, you know, the thing is, there was, you know, I was kind of there when it was. There was a lot of stuff going on. There was some guys hitting some <laughs> massive bombs. So I mean, for me, there was there was more than one guy that could put it on put it on
1: a display MVP. That's for sure. Definitely.
2: Gene,
1: were you gonna say something? No, no one ever came to watch me take BP from the opposing team. (laughs)
0: Hey,
1: Gene, if it it helps, helps. I
0: was (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. I was like, no one's walking down to my bullpen to see what I'm doing.
1: Uh, I was a very cagey hitter in BP; couldn't get it out of the cage. Holy (laughs) cow! Well, so I was gonna. So
2: I know Gene made a living off first pitch fastballs. Um, and I did want to talk talk a little bit about that. Um, so just to give you a little insight of how we're trying to compartmentalize this and shrink it down, um, John is saying, let's teach four sequences to kids. So we're teaching nine year olds on the, on the mound, fast, fast, slow, slow, which is the most common one that you'll see, right? Get up, you know, show that fastball, get up and then you go your off-speed pitches. So fast, fast, slow, 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 fast, fast. Fast flow, fast flow, and then I think he said fast flow, slow fast,
0: yeah? Slow fast, What's the opposite, slow fast, slow oh, yeah. fast. So anyway,
2: regardless, is, I'm curious from your level, you know, you're talking about hitting first pitch fastballs, Kerry's talking about just low and away, low and away, low and away, breaking ball, you know what I mean? Like, um, I don't know that that's always what was happening in the games that you were playing. So can you tell us a little bit more from your perspective, who was, who was having those conversations and what did that look like um, from your standpoint? I
1: don't care who goes. Well, for me, listen, I think every hitter needs to know what his strengths and weaknesses are and take that to the batter's box first. Okay, then you're going to think about what the pitcher does well and not so well. For me, I felt, I don't care if I knew a curveball was coming or a slider was coming, it still wasn't the easiest pitch for me to hit. Whereas if I looked first pitch, first pitch <laughs> heater and it was in my, you know, wheelhouse a little bit middle in, I was not going to let that pitch go. And I always felt, at least in my time growing up as a hitter, it was look fastball, adjust curve, every pitch, every pitch. And again, like I said, since even if I knew the curve was coming and off speed was coming, I still couldn't barrel it up consistently. So I knew my strength was, you know, hand eye coordination with something straight. Um, in those days, there wasn't that many two-seams fastballs. It was mostly four-seam fastballs. So when you saw a fastball, it wasn't going to move too much at all. So it was a little bit easier, and I'll, I'll admit that, since everybody threw four-seam fastball, So I was not going to let my strength, you know, avoid my strength, so to speak. But even if a guy threw really, really hard, I never felt with a fastball, no matter how hard a pitcher threw, he was going to blow it by me. Um, Now, like I said earlier, I was a switch hitter. I was a much better left-handed hitter, um, so I didn't have to cheat on any fastball from the left side. Now, right-handed, I was a little bit weaker. Uh, My hip did not explode from the right side like it should have, so I really had a tendency to cheat early in the count, hoping that I would get a fastball. Um, But I think the thing that hitters do wrong a lot, especially younger hitters, is that they worry about so much what the pitcher does well, and they kind of avoid what they do well, whereas I think it should be the opposite. Figure out what you do good. Do you hit a breaking ball better? Well, then you might have a different mindset that I ever would have. But for me, it was the reason why I'm jumping on the first pitch because that's the best pitch for me to hit.
0: Kerry, you got anything on that?
1: Um, well, for me, it was always, it
3: kind of was dictated a little bit by the situation and kind of what role I was in. I think um, when I was a late-inning guy, it was kind of, what's the situation? Is this a situation where a base hit ties the game? Do I have a base open? Um, Do we have a five-run lead, and does it really matter? Let's just get the outs. Um, You know, and it was always – nowadays, there's so much more information as far as, you know, scouting of the players, their averages in certain counts – what they're hitting against breaking balls. You know, when I was playing, we, we got the stat pack and you kind of sometimes you'd have a little bit of info. I usually knew, I kept track who the first pitch swingers were. So when I knew a guy was a first pitch swinger, um, especially if it was a situation where a base hit ties the game or puts them in the lead, I very rarely, th- I mean, I just didn't throw fastballs. I was always like, well, I'm going to make them hit. Because for me, my, I always felt my slider was my best pitch, so <laughs> I would go slider for sure. Like that's just, just how it was. And if it was if it was like a nine-run lead, then I would lay a nice little heater in there and let them just get out. So you know, <laughs> I mean, a lot I of it play, just depends your too. Face,
0: your face, your face is saying everything. You, oh my you god! You do not I agree with that. our fast flow. You're not, you're not <laughs> as, as the first pitch guy. I
3: can't. Like, yeah. You know, you're the guy you're the, the, the thing. Guy let, that me ask,
1: let me ask you. Let me ask you three pitches a question. Okay. The thing that bothers me as a coach, I think pitchers give hitters way give the hitters way too much credit, and they start nibbling way too early in the count. Honestly, I think. Most pitchers, if you just throw fastballs down the pipe, you're going to get people out. It's, it's that's, well, why hitting I think, is, that's why hitting is so hard. But they try well, and to dribble 102. Ocas is calling sliders. 1-0. Cast, throw a <laughs> freaking fastball You know? Well, I agree so with that. I agree with like, that with the high to, school kids. Yeah.
3: But you guys, you guys are playing a different
2: game, like Minnesota baseball. Yeah. You guys all know it, right? It's just like it's such a different game. But, like, the kids out here, you can't do that in high school baseball in Southern California. <laughs> like, they, they hit the ball 400 feet. Um, but also, what are you trying to
1: say? Like, Southern California baseball is better than Minnesota yeah, and the hockey is better there,
2: right? The
0: hockey is a little better there. So, well, you are the state but my of point
2: hockey. Is this what what john has given me and i'm just throwing it out there i'm not trying to prove a point i'm just saying this is how it changed for me is we got to tell them something more than that right you're absolutely right if you and i are getting in a game right now like why are we doing anything besides just spotting fastballs because i don't have to do anything else but then there's the other part of what if you just tell them something very specific that they can do right And, and my argument was can you please throw a something really nasty that's not a fastball? Just I don't care where it goes. Do one of those things, and then and then play your fastball off of that. So then we can have a sequence, right? And so what we're trying to uh, allude to kids is like a shitty plan is better than no plan at all, right? And so to your point of going out on the box, right? <laughs> going out to the box and not knowing your strength is the same thing as the the pitcher not going out there with predetermined. Things. It's literally like the football coach going down the field for the first drive with a completely scripted thing. Why don't you just script out a whole entire lineup for your kid and be like, okay, and then flip this when you do the opposite the second time through the order. And if you get through the third time the order, we'll high-five each other because we're winning and you can still pitch. You know, um, I, Carrie might have had to go for, for time differences, but – We'll see if he jumps back in. So that, that's all I'm saying. I totally get where you're coming from. It's just, what are your – I don't think people talk about it like that. What if you just taught kids, here are some ways to take the first three pitches, you know, and with two pitches, right? And so what? it was like eight different options, right? So if you take the first three pitches and iterate that out with two pitches, there's eight options. Yeah. And so if you want to simplify things, it, there you go. That's all you can do. Well, So, this is, so to your this point, the- like –
1: no, but this is as far as what coaching is all about. I don't disagree with you at all. In fact, I agree with you. And this is what is important for me to, for coaches to understand. It's not so much about the result, right? Because the result is going to be what it is. We're trying to get young people better at their craft. So yeah. if that's the way you determine that young man to get better and then he, you know, gives up a few runs, you say, who cares? Okay. I'm yeah. not saying you do that obviously in a big game, but whether it's your scrimmages into squad scrimmages or you're playing early in the season and he's going to pitch he's going to be one of your top guys let him make his mistakes then right so that he's got a lot of confidence and a game plan in the bigger games where those uh his ability to utilize those different pitches and his different uh, mentality is going to be making him successful that's what i'm saying i'm not obviously from a development wise i'm not going to say just throw the ball right down the pipe every pitch because kids are, that's not my point my point is from a pitching perspective, I just think, in general, you give hitters way too much credit.
2: I, I, and, totally. And, and I, I totally agree. And so I think my, my counter is there, there needs to be a solution, right? So we need to give kids ways. Can you give me one of those? Just to, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? So, so that's just been <laughs> my experience. Is it's like this has been so complicated to me. And so I'm simply offering the idea that, hey, I think it's really helpful to say, listen, Okay, I'm not gonna tell you exactly what to do, but can you imagine going a fastball inside, a fastball inside, and then a slider away? Can you imagine that as a as a hitter, okay? And you're saying this to a pitcher, and it's like, okay, you're right, it's not that fucking hard. Sorry, I, I didn't need to drop an F on there, but it's not that hard to actually do that. But you're scared that something bad is going to happen, right? You're not actually just focusing on executing, you know? And that's where I'm going, okay, If I can get kids to say, you know what, I'm trying to execute a sequence, okay? I'm trying to go fastball, fastball, slider, fastball. Maybe that's the sequence that we practice in games. If you actually just do that in a game, that's that's what it is. And so when you said that, Gene, I playing with you, I was going to say coaching with you, you did such a good job of that because freaking the first five, six games of the season, it didn't matter. We
1: had to see what our kids could do. Cass, you need to go on podcast number 87 for this, okay? How does failure create opportunity for kid's growth? It's Because why, why do kids fail consistently and why do kids not fail consistently? Certain kids have that mentality that they understand the process that failure will help them get better. And as long as the coach keeps that in mind and keeps emphasizing that, you screwed up today, blah, 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 for this reason, it's going to make you better. Then you've got other kids who never want to feel that way, who never want to feel getting the big run given up off of him or the coach who keeps getting in the kid's ear. Why did you throw that pitch? Why did you throw that pitch? So you think the kid is ever going to come back and try to battle through adversity? And that's what we talk about why there are good coaches. We've all had really good coaches, and we've had really crappy coaches. And to me, the crappy coach consistency is one who always says the game, he always forgets how tough the game is mentally. We all know physically how tough it is. Mentally, bad coaches forget how tough the game is. And that's what a crappy coach is. And they don't allow kids to fail and allow kids to grow from their failures. And those coaches that allow their kids to grow from failures are the guys that I've always wanted to play with. Because you're never afraid to compete. You're never afraid of making mistakes. Because why do we play the game? Because we love it. Well, we're not going to love the game if we're afraid of making a mistake or the guy on the third-base coaching box in a dugout is yelling at him because he's made a mistake, you know? that To me, it's a real simple philosophy. Never forget how difficult the game of baseball, no matter what level you're coaching. Because once you forget, you're worthless to the kids.
2: And that's where you said that, like, you, you wish you would have chilled out as a player, where you wish you would have just enjoyed yeah. the game. You know, but but you know, and, and as as a coach I'm going, I wanna make sure that I don't make those mistakes as a coach. That I have a guy that like Gene Larkin on my team that just is grinding, grinding, grinding and like, hey man, like teach them how to chill up. Teach them how to enjoy the enjoy what's going on. Be like you know what I mean, and that's but the problem is is it's, it's a cutthroat business at that point. Like he can't give you words of he can't be encouraging when he's like, dude, you might be out the door tomorrow like <laughs> I can't. I can't let you relax at the same time. So the big league level is a little bit different. But for kids, yeah, man, it's like I, you know. I, I always said to kids in Minnesota, it's like your parents are gonna still love you, and they're probably gonna feed you. With <laughs> Maybe not, but probably, you know. <laughs>
0: And uh, 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 back to the sequencing idea, I think that um, the way we've come up with this idea and this method is exactly what you said earlier, like the situation, right? Yep. And it, the idea that you you told, you, you know, the moyes a story where you just banger, 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 right? And, and you knew it worked and it was a thing, right? And it's, we're not saying that you can't go one pitch the whole time. What we're saying is just like what you said in your strategy it was fastball away, fastball away, <laughs> slider, Right? And then when you yep. felt like he was probably cheating first pitch, you probably went slider. Right. And so you start teaching these kids where they understand their own percentages and their probabilities. Obviously we don't want to go two O, we don't want to go three Oh. Right. But just in case those things happen, these sequences allow easier understanding of answers. You bounce your first pitch slider, carry, what are you throwing next pitch? You throwing on a fastball or slider? Yeah.
3: Well, it depends who the hitter is, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Exactly. For me, it was, you know, and for me, cause I was always a reliever. So it was always, what's, what's the situation? You know, now, as a pitching coach, I always, like, the starters drive me nuts because as the starter, it's like we've got to get through five, six innings. And if we're throwing 30 pitches every inning, we're not going to get very far in this game. And, you know, walking guys get behind 2-0. And, oh, and now, as a pitching coach, I'm super, you know, looking at first pitch strikes, two out of threes. Um, trying to get through innings with 12 or less pitches. You know, It's as a, from the starter, I'm, like, trying to get as deep in this game as we can and at the same time realizing well, there's going to be spots that come up where we need to, like, be careful and really make some good pitches here because this could be the turning point in the ballgame. As a reliever, it was always, you know, and you always want to be the reliever that they're in the tight games. It's these pitches are freaking important, and they need to be good – is you can make them and don't make them. It's just don't make a mistake because you're always going to make a mistake. But I'm always like you need to be super aggressive through where you're trying to go with this ball, whether it's, you know, way in, breaking ball. Because the thing is, no matter who you are, how good you are, you're always going to make a mistake that you get hurt on. And it kind of goes back to you're going to have a failure. How are you going to deal with it? you got to be able to make, make something better come out of it, move on and just get better from it. you know and like you guys are talking about the sequences i mean do you think it's too hard to do location sequences for these kids
2: well so I, i'm it, glad you asked that because i was going to say that's what we're trying to make a stand on Is i think it's easier because command takes so long to get right so to your point like let's just throw let's sit up down the middle like let's let's compete but that's where I think talking about it in fast, slow. When John first said that to me, then I could simplify everything. It doesn't matter if fast, well, slow is a cutter, if it's a changeup, if
3: it's yeah. just
2: just because your command probably won't be there, so you might as well take advantage of the the the, the timing differences, right? And that's all it is, right? Hitting, you're off time and It doesn't matter
3: how good your swing is. Well, and the thing is that you know when they get to be like thirteen, thirteen, fourteen, then it should be. You know, you should be able to locate it in an area, and that's where it's. Yeah, and that's where it's like, kids always want to be on the black all the time, and it's like we do when you're 13, 14. Let's just make that black be like a shoebox, so we're in that area, and then as you get older, because even for me, I didn't really refine my control till I was in the big leagues, or you know, as I got higher up. And so for the in college, I mean, for me in college, I didn't know I literally didn't have a clue what I was doing because our pitching coach called the pitches. So I just I saw a number and threw it. And, you know, that's one thing I like to even for, you know, I coached high school for a couple of years and I let I let the kids call the game because I felt like it doesn't do that any good for me to call the pitches unless they're like. You know really into it and asking me questions otherwise they just see a number they throw it they don't think about it so they're not really getting any better at least you let them kind of decide what they want to do and then you can you start to question them see if they have an answer and you can take the discussion from there and that's where i think you know when you guys have kids that are pretty talented or that are really into the game you can start to like make it a little bit more advanced and you know, get them really into what's going on and talking about the sequences, you know, and even, even I have a kid who's a senior, my son's a senior, and he doesn't really talk about the sequences. He's just trying to throw the shit out of the ball and go from there. And that's one thing where I told him, you have to learn because pitching isn't, you can't just throw hundred miles an hour and get everybody out because at some point it's all timed up. It's about having a feel having a feel for what the hitter's trying to do, and just, you know, kind of being able to make adjustments on the fly. And, you know, for me, I had a degree in engineering, and I always kind of looked at, you know, coming in as a reliever. was like, there's, we have a problem, and I need to figure out the best solution to get out of the inning. So it was kind of always looking at what was going on, who was coming up you know, how many outs, what bases were open, what I could do. And it was always kind of like a little puzzle for me. And that's still how I kind of approach it is there's not one right or wrong way to get through these situations as a pitcher. And sometimes you're going to make a horrible mistake and get away with it. And sometimes you're going to make great pitches and you're not going to get the results you wanted. So, um, you know, for me, there's not one right or wrong way. It's kind of figuring out what works for you, knowing your strengths and being able to go from there.
2: This makes me think of like grading them a little bit. Right. So let's say, you know, an easy sequence would be fastball, fastball, fastball. Right. And so like if you're in a situation where we're up by six runs, like, hey, let's use all of our easy sequences right now and get the heck out of here. Right. But then to your point, like just giving it a sense of like, hey, that that's probably not going to work unless you're 92 you know what I mean? That's not going to be an elite sequence for you. Here's an elite sequence for you when you face the four hitter in a big situation. And then this is the kind of risk that is right. And you can like develop this with the kids. I never thought of that, but I appreciate you guys like kind of poking holes in it. A well, little bit.
3: and the thing, you know, the thing is like when you have, so for me, you know, I was a back guy, and then towards the end of my career, I was kind of sort of a mop. I kind of was a mop up long guy. So, I mean, I would come in a game where either we are winning by seven or eight or losing by seven or eight. And those really the games where you better not freaking walk anybody. No matter who's winning or losing, it's a huge score. This is where you're just coming in. And you're and the thing is, if you're losing by eight, the hitters on the other team are usually just coming up there trying to hit bombs. But at the same time, you're not, you can't be throwing three sliders in 3-0 because then Leo's gonna be all over me when I get the dugout. So, I mean, that's kind of, even for me, like in the summer when we're playing and the game's out of hand and I'm like, why we, you know, how are we walking guys when it's 12 to two and we're losing? And you guys are going and throwing, you know, three sliders in the dirt and then you airmail a heater to walk a guy and he's like the number nine hitter. And, you know, and that's where like for you as teaching these high school kids, it's, you know, knowing the situation, kind of knowing where the bottom of the order is. You can be a little – you can be super aggressive with some of those guys Um, and just kind of knowing – you know, that was the one thing, always knowing what hitters can do the most damage, kind of the hitters that you need to fear, especially in big situations, you know, in a game. So, I totally agree. That's why we
0: kind of started going off to these sequences and we can educate these kids where it's like, you know, you give them these preset of questions where they can start paying attention and learning this side of the game. Because if I'm facing Gene Larkin and I know he's a first-pitch fastball gangster, then I'm probably going to throw a first-pitch cutter or changeup and just see what he does with it, you know? Hit it off my shin. <laughs> right? But even then, that's information. And that's the part of the game that I really enjoy. When you're facing these really good hitters and you have these plans that you go out and, like what Carrie's talking about, like – the, nobody is talking about the situations and the sequences that you use that are appropriate in the big leagues. And it's the same in college. And then it just trickles down and turns into what you can't handle. Right. So Carrie, you had a banger and a fastball. I don't remember. Did you have a change up or did you
3: split? Uh, I threw a, somewhat of a split kind right? of. <laughs> so that was your, um, that
0: was your third pitch. Right. And did you mainly use that on yeah. lefties?
3: Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it was, you know, early in my career, not being seen, you know, because there wasn't a lot of reports. It was, you know, for me, I would come in and just pump hitters, get to two strikes and then just especially righties, I could put them away. As I got a couple of years in the league, you know, then it was making adjustments and hitters were making adjustments all the time. So um, and for me, I had kind of a low slot. So lefties always gave me trouble. Um and it was just tough to kind of figure out how the heck to get them out. And it was some days the split were good, some days it was not. Um, you know, and that's where I mean it is. It's like you have a plan and then your plan just kind of goes to shit right away because the hitters changed his approach and now you're now you're kind of adjusting on the fly. And I'm sure for like Gene, Gene probably always had an approach for what he wanted to do against certain guys. But then if they changed kind of how they're pitching him, then he was probably like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, that's kind of how it was for me. It was I always had a plan. It didn't always work. And then when they started kind of making adjustments, then it was up to me to try to make adjustments the other way. So it was kind of a missing game a little bit.
1: Gene, did you have
0: information that was given to you about, like, you know, first such fastball guys
1: or, you know, was sure. that floating I mean, around
0: the, the clubhouse and stuff?
1: Yeah, I think uh, people think now that uh, back in the olden days when I played in the late 80s and early 90s, they didn't have any information. We, we had a team meeting before every series, and although it wasn't on a spreadsheet, it was basically in a notebook with uh, ruler driven lines red line, ground ball, green line, fly ball, blue line, base hit type of stuff. And you knew pitching tendencies, what they like to do to start their hitters off, whether it's a right handed hit, a left handed hitter. what are their three pitches if they were a starter, what are their two out pitches as, as relief pitches. So, yeah, we, we, we got that all that information too um, before every series. And obviously the longer you play, um, you know how certain pitchers' patterns like to be dictated based on situation. Um, and, again, this goes back to watching the game from the dugout as well, whether you're a starter or a position player. Um, and, again, trying to teach young kids when they're on the bench, you could learn a lot about what's going on. Uh, by watching not only your hitters, their hitters, but their opposing pitchers as well. So that you do get up there, you have an idea. Um, You should really never be surprised in the fourth or fifth inning, what's going on as a hitter, um, because you've been through the lineup twice or so. So things like that you pick up. And um, the best pitchers, to me, dictated their uh, pitch sequence by what was working for them. Um, For example, if if you're a fastball pitcher, um, and the fastball is not working, if you continually try to throw first-pitch fastballs and you're 1-0 every time and you're not trying to make an adjustment, you're not going to be very good and you're not going to be on the mound very long. Um, so the guys you kind of figured out who were smart enough and wasn't stubborn enough to change their sequence, too, based on how they were doing in a game. And also, I think some some of the things, obviously, as you get older... Good catches can really dictate what's going on on the mound, too. Um, You know, if you have a stubborn pitcher, you go out there and say, listen, this is not working for you. We're going to go in a different direction here. Try to get into the pitcher's head. Be confident. Show them that you know what you're doing behind the plate. I think sometimes the catching role is overlooked, too, as well as how uh, well a pitcher does in a particular game. And, you know, a lot of a lot of goes into the veteran type catcher. Is he a senior catcher? Is he a sophomore catcher? Is he a senior on the mound? Very similar to what happens as you get older in college or in the big leagues. If you got a veteran pitcher, the the pitcher will probably dictate the role more than the catcher. But if it's vice versa, if you got a Benji Molina on the, on behind the dish and you got a guy who's kind of one two years in the big leagues, you're going to go what Benji Molina says and you're going to shut up, right? But I think that plays a big part too um, in how the picture is dictated, what what the sequence is. But from a hitting perspective, you have to watch and you have to learn. Obviously, the first few at bats are going to be rough, but over a period of time, if you're playing at a higher level and you're facing a guy time and time again, um, you're going to have a pretty good idea. And then the pitcher's going to have a pretty good what you do well. And that's the cat and mouse game, right? And that's why that's why we love the game, out thinking each other and um, not thinking so much at times, but thinking a little bit more than you normally would at times as well. And that's, that's the, to me, the fun part of hitting and pitching, the competition level.
0: Sounds like you and I need to, to lace it up, Gene. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I really no honestly at my age I really wish I had the knowledge that you guys have had now uh, growing up and developing the game it was it was just you figure it out on the fly a little bit there wasn't a lot of literature you talked to various guys but you know like I said there was no weight training there really no nutrition uh, you know it's it, it's it was so backwards compared to what guys have right now and and I say this with with all the respect in the world you the guys now, high school players now have all the things going for them to be a good player. They have all the facilities, all the equipment, all the so all the great coaches, knowledgeable coaches that they have. To me, it's a little bit easier than because when I played, it was all you got to figure it out on your own a little bit. Now you got a lot of people in the industry have tried to figure it out, and now they can, you know, use that knowledge and equipment and facilities to help the younger generation. I think right now is a tremendous time to be a younger athlete
2: I, I just think it, it, it just comes down to the what you said I mean everything is that's what hasn't changed what you did to have success what Carrie did to have success what anybody has done to have success is you just have to put in the work um, yeah. we're playing with um, a warm-up tool just like some ropes and yeah. like not jumping rope and I don't know if you've seen me do that but the idea is like people yeah. want to know exactly what I'm doing like Van Worley was like and I just want you to tell me what to do. I'm like, I can, but you're still going to just have to swing these ropes around like a weirdo for a couple hours before you understand what's going on. And that's just right. like a, you know, a metaphor for skill development, right? It's like, this is what uh, we had a guy from blast motion that we know. He was telling us that we're like the, the, the people who are going to bridge the gap because I'm over here going, I don't know. You can, you can blast motion me. You can, you can rap me. You can pitch logic me all day long, but if you're not going to put in the work, it, this, this doesn't matter you know so when you're talking about sequencing i think this also is i think we're you know whether it's perfectly on paper this hierarchy of what you should be worried about is like do you like playing the game because i think a lot of people are not playing the game for the right reason right and then like are you actually going to work hard because if you're not going to work hard me telling you how to throw a two zero 0 change up like that's probably not going to get anywhere because that takes practice, that takes the skill set. So right. I think you're just alluding to, I think a lot of people in the in in Minnesota baseball just simply don't realize how to put in the time. And if you just compare the kind of hours that hockey players put on the rink and compare that to what baseball players do on the field, right? It's hard, right? It obviously is a lot easier for people to do that here, but and we're inside and we got a lot of people coming inside. So it's just it's just a cultural thing. And, right you know, learning from that standpoint, I'm not, I'm not crapping on anybody. It's it's just, it's helpful to understand, you know? So when we're talking to Caden and and John who were remote training, like those kids, dude, they throw a lot, right? They're doing a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff. How many kids do that? You know? And that's, that happens with everybody here. So.
1: Yeah. You can find great hockey players in San Diego too, if they want to put the time in. Right. So. It's, uh, so it is, it's whatever right? your it's whatever your passion is, whatever your, your mentality is. If you really want to get after it and uh, make the sacrifice, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the sky's the limit. Um, only you know that you know your limit based on how much work and time and sacrifice you put in. It's as simple as that. I'm not a very high IQ guy. I try try to live my life common sense. But if you really want to get good at something, you've got to make it your lifestyle as well, right? So if you want to be a pitcher. Then you're thinking about pitching 11 months out of the year, if not 12 months out of the year. If you want to be a good hitter, you're thinking about how to become a better hitter every time you're working out. You not have to be working out with a coach. You can do a lot of stuff on. As as bad as this quarantine stuff is for kids, it also shows them how they can improvise to be a better player within a short period of time or the confines that they are. Um, you know what we did, what I did as a kid in my backyard, throwing a ball off a wall. Now kids are doing that more. Because they have to, because they can't congregate in a group or with a coach. So, you know, as bad as this quarantine stuff is for everybody, there might be a silver lining for kids to figure out how they can do a lot of stuff on their own to get better.
2: Yeah, it's definitely been interesting seeing all the kids at home with their parents. I mean, there's some, (laughs) it's not always good, right, Carrie? but...
3: Yeah, I need a break. <laughs> Did you uh, see some
2: kid commented on your quarantine
3: beard? No, I haven't shaved in about a month. Yeah. I'm looking a little more homeless every day, I think. Yeah. You got to break
1: out the, the burns again, man. Break them out. Was, yeah.
3: yeah.
2: By the way, Gino didn't all... stop on. Gino stopped on jeans. And said this is amazing, so can't see that. So. Gino's always watching you, man.
1: Yeah, he's the one kid I, I didn't coach very well. He'll tell you that. <laughs> That's hilarious.
2: I was gonna lead with that question, but you had a bigger question for me. So,
1: what's Definitely. that?
2: I said that was going to be my first question of the podcast, but you stole my thunder with the zinger at the beginning.
3: So, (laughs) Well, hey guys,
0: it's been an hour and 40 minutes. We've been killing it. I appreciate you guys taking some time out of your day
3: um, and
0: and coming over there and sharing some information. This is is really, really awesome. I appreciate it. Um, Why don't you guys uh, talk a little bit about your business, where you guys are at, um, if anybody has any questions up in Minnesota and, and, and plug that for us.
1: Well, if you want to face the greatest pitching coach in the world, come to Kerry Leitenberg, Nevers Larkin Baseball. <laughs> he died in Minnesota. If you want to become an average hitter, look me up at nlbplayers.com. <laughs> hey, good luck with it's, Cutter Nation. I hope you guys do very, very well. You guys are the best. Their Instagram
2: yeah. is at nlbplayers, and I'm pretty sure their Twitter is as well, at nlb, like Nevers Larkin Baseball, uh, players. Um yeah, that's on Twitter and Instagram. They, you guys Instagram has been going crazy lately. You guys going questions. I dude, I have gotten so many of those wrong and I feel so dumb for not knowing <laughs> that. But anyway, yeah, you guys are the best. I appreciate both your time.
0: Thank you so much. You're good boys. It. You got Enjoy it. the weather. All right. See ya. Yeah, you. Yeah, take
2: care.